Hello, my name is Chandler O'Leary. And my name is Johnny Hatch. Welcome to Bedside Business, a student-run podcast where we talk with physicians about how they use business principles to improve their lives and the lives of their patients. We believe that business is a tool physicians can use to help their patients fight against burnout and make the world a better place. We aim to explore all these topics and more. In this episode, we talk with pediatric dermatologist, Dr. Sadaf Hussein. Directly out of training, Dr. Hussein opened a private practice dermatology clinic that focused on providing care to the underserved pediatric population in Trenton, New Jersey. In this episode, Dr. Hussein shares why she loves dermatology, why and how she opened her clinic, and why she made the shift to academia. Dr. Hussein has a rich, unique perspective on the advantages and disadvantages of both the academic and private practice models. Our conversation was incredibly enjoyable and insightful. We hope you enjoy. So today we have Dr. Sadaf Hussein with us today. Uh, Dr. Hussein, thanks for being with us on the show. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, we'd like to start with just with an introduction. So you are currently a pediatric dermatologist, um, but can you tell us a little bit about where you went to school, where you did your training, and where you are now uh, in practice? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I was born and raised in New Jersey um, and ended up doing a six-year medical program. So it was the Penn State Jefferson six-year med program. So I started that when I was about 17, graduated from med school when I was 23. I stayed at my home institution for my residency. Um, and then after residency, I decided to do, which was a hard decision for me, actually, um, a pediatric dermatology fellowship um, at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and the University of Pennsylvania. I say that's a hard decision because derm was a hard decision because I loved everything. And then on top of that, I loved Mohs and Peds derm, which are somewhat diametrically opposed, but I got there. So I uh, I made my decision super happy with it, ended up um, at CHOP and UPenn, got amazing care, met amazing people. Um, and then from there, I um, did private practice in a really urban area, so Trenton, New Jersey, based on some JAMA dermatology articles from when I was a resident, and I think they redid it, they showed um, Trenton as being like, I think number six out of like the most needed places for dermatology in the country. Um, So it was one of those places that really didn't have anyone. So I I spent some time there. And then, um, and that was a private practice that I set up. And then um, after that, I transitioned into academia. So now I am a pediatric dermatologist and I um, see patients at Boston Children's Hospital. I also am a clinical instructor for Harvard Medical School um, and the residency site director um, for the Harvard Dermatology Program. So that's what I'm doing now. in my roles now, I uh, basically see patients most of the time. Um, I also do a lot of teaching, and we're also dabbling in some research, hopefully going to um, make that kick that up a little bit and, and do a little bit more with that this year. Awesome. Sweet. How did you feel about the uh, six-year program? Did you feel like it was a pretty good route? I actually liked it. Um, because it kind of just gave me a start and a finish. And honestly, I didn't know whether I wanted to be a doctor or a lawyer. And so my mom's thing was that, you know, if you want to do both, why don't you just do this? And then if you want to be a lawyer afterwards, you'll still be the same age as everyone else. So So, um, I actually did like it. Our program had flexibility. Plus I went to for high school, I went to a Catholic Italian all girl school. I am not Italian. I'm not Catholic. It was amazing um, because I got, you know, all the stuff that you want to dabble in, like world history, art history, like theology, got all that in high school. And so 
Um, in college, basically, um, I had some of that stuff already done. Um, so I, I probably didn't need the complete four years, but I have friends who actually extended it to, you know, three years of college or four years of college and even five, and then went on to med school. So I liked yeah. it. It was flexible, but also if I wanted to go through like a straight arrow, arrow, I totally could have. And I did. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like a good program. Um, you just said 23 when you graduated med school and that's how old I was when I started medical school and, uh, you know, it kind of makes you sad sometimes, yeah. but <laughs> it's okay. I mean, all of us who were, um, in this program, when we started medical school, we were under the age of 21 and all of the events have alcohol at them. So we would all have to get our right hand stamp, oh, no. you know, go to the bar and nobody would know that because we were medical students. So yeah. yeah. Plus the minus is both ways. I think. Yeah. That's hilarious. Yeah. So I, you know, being in medical school, we had, you know, maybe one week of dermatology. So I don't know a lot about dermatology. I know less about pediatric dermatology, but then you also do procedural pediatric dermatology. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. Can you just give us a little bit about what, what does that mean? Like, what do you do with, with that? Yeah, sure. So, um, first of all, you guys are super lucky. You got a week. I got like two days of peds or sorry, of derm training in medical school. And it was literally the Wednesday before exam on Friday. So nobody came. So, um, <laughs> yeah, basically, unless you wanted to learn about dermatology, you weren't going to learn about dermatology. Um, I stumbled upon it in interesting ways, just like kind of by happenstance was doing random PubMed searches. And, um, I know you guys heard my, um, other podcast and I mentioned that whole story of like this randomness of how I got into pediatric dermatology in particular, but basically, um, I liked dermatology for a couple of reasons. So the first thing is that I like to be start and finish of everything, meaning that um, I like to be able to look at something, know what it is. And if I don't know what it is, I can go ahead and biopsy it. And then I can actually read my slides, right? Because I've been trained in pathology reading of slides. And then if it's a skin cancer, I can cut it out myself. So, and then if the scar is not perfect, I can go ahead and laser that or do the peels. So it's basically start to finish, you know, um, almost like the primary care all the way to the specialty within the skin. So that's what I really loved was the autonomy of dermatology. So that's partially how I got there. Pediatric dermatology was um, just something that I, I totally fell into and loved it. I ended up rotating in a clinic um, and um, just had such an amazing experience. I was like, this is what I'm born to do. I'm going to do it. Um, going into med school, I thought I was going to be a neonatologist, then realized this might be a little bit tough for me after listening to the neonatologist speak. And then I was like, I'm going to be a pediatric surgeon. And then I was like, I don't like hernia repairs, but I still love <laughs> surgery. Then I was like, I was, I'm going to do pediatric plastic surgery. And I really love that. And then there was issues about, uh, you know, my mentor was like reimbursement rates being what they are. You're probably going to end up doing a lot more cosmetics than the pediatric plastics parts of them. And that kind of made me really sad. And then I ended up falling into pedsterm. So um, that's how I got there. Pediatric dermatology is basically you're taking care of the skin of kids. But the thing that's really cool about it is like everything in medical school becomes relevant. So you, it's not just acne and eczema and warts and stuff like that. Um, you end up having like a lot of genetic diseases, like genodermatoses, like there's a condition called epidermolysis bullosa, where, you know, you have blistering disorder of the skin because there's a genetic abnormality with the collagens that are there. Um, you get to see biochemistry in action. So a lot of metabolic diseases come up with things. And a lot of times we're the ones to diagnose them. Um, kids also present with weird things manifesting as, you know, um, signs of cancer in the skin. So you'll see things like Langerhans cell histiocytosis or potentially sweet syndrome, which is uh, associated with certain types of malignancies. So I loved it because it was me using my eyes to know that there's something deeper going on. That's actually important. And dude, we need to figure out what's going on with this kid. So that's why I loved pediatric dermatology. Now, pediatric procedural dermatology 
um, is another animal. So I love um, procedures. So I like to do surgery. I like to like look at a laser and, you know, hit a blood vessel and bam, it's gone. And you can see it. It's just instant gratification. Um, so what I do in that realm is pediatric dermatologists do do a lot of laser, usually vascular lasers for birthmarks um, to help with deformities and to prevent certain complications that can come up with them. So I do do that. So pulse dye laser. Um, also um, excision. So kids have things that need to be removed. Sometimes they're benign things, but are causing problems or concern for the family. And other times they're malignant. And so um, I do, you know, I do biopsies and I do excisions um, on young children as well. Um, and then we also do some things with, with injectables at times as well, more so things like Botox. So you can use Botox for things like um, primary hyperhidrosis, which is when people are sweating too much. Um, and it's a physiological thing. It's not really related to like an underlying disease that they're sweating too much, but you can use Botox for things like that. Um, there's also a genodermatosis called pecanicia congenita, which is very long, but basically these kids get really, really painful feet that are really thick. Um, um, and it makes it hard for them to walk and you can actually use Botox to help with the pain there. So we'll do things like that. So that's the procedural aspect of pediatric dermatology. Cool. It's pretty cool. At the beginning, you uh, you brought up how you don't like learn very much dermatology in medical school. And that's hilarious because that's what I get asked. Like my family asks me the most about dermatologic issues. They're like, hey, what is this rash or what is this? And I'm like, unless it's ABCD of melanoma or it's a bullseye rash, I don't know what it is. That is exactly right. And you know, ever since I matched into dermatology, I have not gone to a party, a wedding, a funeral, <laughs> or whatever, without somebody asking me a dermatology question. And usually my family or my friends have to drag me away. Um, because it's like curbside consultation wherever you go. It's just it's right there. It's on the skin. And, and people also probably don't realize that. Yeah, but it's a party. right? <laughs> <laughs> So, um, they're just like, well, why can't you just look at it? Tell me what it is. And yeah. so I'm sure you guys get that as med students all the time. Yeah. Um, so the scope of your practice is huge. Um, I mean, I love that you can go from all the way from like visually inspecting to doing the pathology yourself. When you first started, um, your private practice, did the scope of your practice influence why you decided to make it private? Um, or can you talk about like what kind of thoughts went into your decision to start out a private practice? So this is really interesting. Um, the private practice thing is where I started when I went into medical school, and then I switched to wanting to do academia, and then I switched back to wanting to do private. So what had happened was my parents are both physicians. So my dad went to medical school when I was like six years old. My mom was a doctor when I was born. And my mom had a private practice. She's a pediatrician. Um, so she had a private practice in Trenton, New Jersey. Um, and so I grew up doing rounds with her in the hospital and going to her clinic and, you know, hanging out with her patients because they were my friends and all of that. And then my dad, when he went to medical school and joined her, he he's an endocrinologist, but he does a lot of primary care as well. So he joined that same practice. So they have their own private practice and, and, and he became part of that. So I grew up kind of in that environment. I also know the community. I know how hard it is to get specialty care in that community. And so it was something that I went to medical school saying, I really need to come back and help this community because they don't have anyone. Um, and then that was really solidified when I was in, in, um, residency, I was like, whoa, that JAMA Derm paper came out and I was like, Trenton, New Jersey's listed. Like, so it's not just my perception. It's, it's reality that they need people there. Um, but then at the same time, I love teaching. I love being around the trainees a lot. I, I love that. Like the ancillary staff, our nurses, like people who just help you care for the patients in the best way possible and just make it as easy as possible for you to concentrate on, you know, medical care as opposed to like bureaucracy. And, um, uh, for that reason, I started to think more about academia. 
my uh, the head of the department where I did my fellowship, um, Albert Yan, um, you know, I owe so much to him. He he actually was telling me he's like, you're an academician. He was like, for sure, you're you're going to be an academia. And even when I told him I was going to go to private practice, he was like, you're going to be back. Um, and so what I think I thought I was going to do academia going into fellowship. Um, and then for some logistical reasons, that was like a little bit tricky. And then the other thing that happened was that when I was doing my residency, one of the biggest uh, Medicaid-based HMO plans in New Jersey, they pulled their services from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. So basically, we used to see these kids for um, their skincare conditions. And you can imagine CHOP at the time was the number one children's hospital in the country. It's still very high. Um, we were seeing crazy cases with these kids who had these insurances, and now they were basically cut off because the insurance companies no longer would reimburse CHOP. So I was like, what are we going to do? Because I know there's nobody else who can take care of these kids and nobody's going to. So basically that means they're going to fall through the cracks. When that happened, I had a discussion with my parents. They had place in their practice in terms of like rooms in the clinic that I potentially could use. Um, they had the experience of how to launch a private practice, which was super helpful. And we just decided that this probably made the most sense. And that's how I ended up really in private practice. Yeah. So that's a pretty cool story to hear. Um, one of the challenges that I see, and it sounds like this might not have been a challenge because, because you have this population of people who need care, they need skin care, they don't have, um, they don't have insurance that is taken by, you know, the safety net hospital. And so now you open a clinic and all these people who need care now have a place to go. But a, a lot of, a lot of medical students want to serve an underserved community. Um, but but one of the problems, especially when you're in a specialty, and I don't really know if this is true, so correct me if I'm wrong, but it's like, how do you let the underserved community know that you are available for them to see? Like, How do you market your services to them so that they know where to go to get care? I think that's such a good point. I can tell you what um, ended up happening for me because it might be a little bit unique, but also um, maybe some things that are more generalizable to people as well. So I think that is very true. Like when you're the new person on the block, it's like, how do you get your name out? How do people even know, you know, that you're there? Um, for me, it was a little bit easier because my parents are primary care doctors, right? And I was from the community. So everybody knew, oh, this one went to medical school and she's doing a dermatology residency. So for that reason, a lot of the people who would be referring to me already knew that I was coming in because there was nobody else there. They were chomping at the bit to send people to me. Um, so th that was definitely one way that I got referrals. One other thing that I did was that I actually went and gave um, a lecture to um, actually a couple lectures to the local hospitals, specifically to the emergency room department, because a lot of times um, they're looking to refer people out um, who can actually manage these conditions more chronically, because obviously you don't want eczema in the ER um, and they don't really have people to refer to. So and if they know you and they've heard you and they trust you, there you go with your base. So um, I gave those lectures. Um, I also took staff privileges like to do consults in the hospital in the beginning. Um, as well for this reason, so that people kind of get to know who you are um, as a provider and then feel comfortable pro like providing new patients. So I did that as well. My home institution um, was very close to where I practice. So, you know, CHOP is probably about, I'd say 40, 45 minutes away. Um, and again, there were all these patients that were ending up in their ER that could not follow up with them. Um, and so a lot of my mentors from my home institution would then send patients to Trenton. So that was another way that I got um, people to come. But I think honestly, the biggest thing was patient word of mouth. So the thing with these populations, like where it's like an urban area, maybe lower socioeconomic status, honestly, your name and how you make people feel, it goes such a long way because people talk to each other. You know, those communities are so close. Like everybody knows everyone's grandma. Like that's just the way it is. 
And um, I think that that made a big difference. You know, our goal going into Trenton, New Jersey was to give the, those patients, the patients who live there, the same care that they would get at the University of Pennsylvania and the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Um, and we wanted people to feel comfortable with that. And we wanted them to feel like they had our time, that we weren't rushing them out the door and that they understood a plan. Um, and so I think that once people started to realize that, <laughs> you know, um, they saw us, they, they had the experience, they went and they told their friends and their family. And, um, you know, we had people even... I was a, I did both kids and adults when I was in private practice, but the other thing that was a big referral base was that they came for their kid and then the, both the parents want to stay, right? Like, so that's another thing too. So I think that for somebody starting out just in general advice, I think it's good to make yourself known to the people who are going to be sending you patients, especially with people with low socioeconomic status. A lot of times they're going to need referrals. So that's going to be primary care offices. So, you know, again, doing um, lectures for your local community um, hospitals would be good. Potentially reaching out to primary care offices, introducing yourself, um, just being an amiable person, like, you know, um, take the phone call at 530. Oh yeah, you know, that, yeah, that seems like a wart, you know, um, happy to get them in if you'd like to just be available to them. That helps a lot. A question about like general financing, because um, whenever you whenever you're going to underserved populations and you have a bunch of medical school debt, you know, there's kind of, I guess, um, an economic reason that those places are sometimes underserved. Yeah. Um, can you talk about like it might be different in New Jersey because I'm assuming the population density is pretty high over there. Um, but we're from Texas. And so there's a lot of a lot of our underserved areas just don't have any population density. So how, um, I guess what I'm asking is how did the, um, socioeconomic status, like, how did you compensate for that economically? Like, did you just do increased volume? Did you, um, like what kind of things went into your calculus for that? So, um, so to be honest with you, um, I got a lot of scholarships for, so my student debt was different than maybe other people coming out. And I think that this is a real issue. Like this whole concept of coming out with six figures debts to become a physician is ridiculous. And uh, like, it's just not something that's sustainable, I think. And I think it really hurts our healthcare system overall, because we know that it changes the way that med students think about medicine in general. You know, most people go into medicine because they want to help people and they really want to care for everyone. And then you come out with all this, you know, student debt and then having a family, you got to take care of and other responsibilities. Now you're not going to be the family practice doctor. You know, you're probably going to try to be the orthopedic surgeon, you know, so that, and, and we have studies that show that, right. And then even if you do do primary care, where exactly are you going to practice in the place that gives you 20 bucks per patient, even though you're spending an hour or the place where you have private insurances that are going to pay you very well. So I think this is like a really, really interesting um, issue. For me specifically, I went in telling myself that this is going to be a labor of love. And since I don't have that debt, I don't care how much money I make. That's not where anyone else is. So I'm not expecting anyone else to do that. I also think it's unfair that our healthcare system makes people think that way. Like, I just don't think that that's um, something that's appropriate. So like we really in general need to overhaul our healthcare system is the short answer to what you're saying. Now, what can we do in the meanwhile? Cause that's going to take time. And it's going to take time to, for people to actually understand that this is an issue for us um, as a society. Um, so the first thing I would say is think about diversifying what you do. So I have some friends, for example, who are really interested in medically complex dermatology. So that might be a patient with like systemic lupus you know, that is having a lot of other serious issues. They actually have life-threatening conditions. Every visit's going to be an hour long. You're going to be checking labs. You're checking vital signs. You're making sure you don't need to hospitalize them. You're still going to get the same 20 bucks for that patient that you would have gotten for, you know, the two minute, you know, whatever patient, right? So if you're working in a, a, an underserved population, that is. 
So how do you offset that? So I have some friends, what they'll do is they'll do cosmetics on certain days to offset the cost loss, if you want to call it that, of taking care of patients with complex medical issues on other days. And that's how they sustain it. So they kind of have this balance. The other thing I've seen people do is that they will, a lot of people work in satellite clinics, right? So they don't just work in one office, but maybe they'll go to two or three throughout the week or throughout the month. And what they'll do is they'll diversify where they're going. So maybe they might spend most of their time in an urban area, but a couple of times a month, they may go out to the suburbs, you know, um, to uh, deal with a clientele that actually has private insurance to be able to offset again, the cost um, of dealing um, with lower socioeconomic status people. And, but when I say that, by the way, I, d- I don't mean to say that there's a cost in dealing with them specifically. It's more that as somebody who's making your own practice, you know, how you have overhead, you have to pay your bills, your lights need to stay on the people who are working for you need to have salaries as well. You need to treat your staff well. And so if you're not getting enough money to do that, then you're, you're not going to be able to provide the care for those patients. So I think, kind of thinking about those things ahead of time, like, you know, should I do a couple of days a week in an area where maybe the payer mix is a little better in terms of reimbursement so that I can then continue to give care to this other population? I think that's, that's an important place to start. Um, I will also say, um, and we may talk about this a little bit later too, but like patient advocacy is so important. And um, I really think that we need to be very vocal as physicians to our patients and also to like our legislators about these issues, because, you know, I remember reading um, that a couple of years ago that 10 cents out of every healthcare dollar goes in the pocket of someone who actually provides care and 90 cents goes somewhere else. And then the problem becomes, and we ran into this a couple of years ago when we were, um, you know, meeting with some, some of our legislators as well. They always want to cut the healthcare budget because it's so high and it's out of control. And we totally agree, but they always want to cut from that 10% sliver and nobody's actually looking at the 90% elsewhere. So I think that we need to change the narrative because that 90% is not something that our patients are directly necessarily benefiting from. And, and so we need to somehow skew this so that the healthcare system actually works for the patients and not for other interests. Yeah, that's, um, we have an episode that we haven't finished editing yet. Um, but we, um, we're talking to a guy who had interviewed, um, the, I think his name is Dean Grossman at NYU's medical school. And they took their school from losing money to free tuition for their students in like a few years. And basically they asked him, how did you do that? And he said, you know, I fired on productive faculty. I just looked at the numbers and any money that was being wasted that we weren't getting something out of, I just got rid of that. And of course he did fundraising and other things, but I just love that principle because I think it, it is a, a, the root of a lot of our problems in our society is just kind of wasting money. And then that stuff gets passed down to people. And then you see all these awful things like, oh, my gosh, these people can't afford health you know, insurance. It must be because of this, this and this. But it's like, let's take a look at maybe we're wasting money at the hospital and whatever. And that's getting passed down to these people. So it's, it's so interesting that you say that, because even I'll tell you um, yesterday, one of my friends posted something on one of our dermatology groups saying that. Um, you know, she was in line behind somebody at a pharmacy and it was an old lady who needed her insulin. And it was, it was something like, I think she said that it was 1200 or $1,500 out of pocket. And, um, the pharmacist looked at the, this woman who was like almost in tears. And she was like, well, you know, your insurance paid for 50%. So that's good. Cause it would have been 3000. And she was like, when did this become okay? Like for us mm-hmm. to even think this way. And I'll tell you, my dad, he has a PhD in physiology and pharmacology. He worked in the lab of Banting and Best, right? Who <laughs> discovered insulin. Um, and um, they discovered it and provided it to be free to the community. So I think like we need, we need to ask ourselves some very difficult questions about what is a priority in our society as a whole and particularly in healthcare. Is it the patient or is it profits and special interests? Um, 
And I think honestly, we as physicians have to really speak out about this because what ends up happening is that people think we're the special interest, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. And then it becomes like an adversarial thing. And it's like, no, we really want to help our patients get good care. That's a hard thing because we are the face that they see, right? We're the ones that they actually interact with that write the prescription for the insulin. So, yeah. but I, I loved your perspective on, on like, what, what can we do? Um, like one advocate in the legislature and then two, what can we do now in order to affect change? And there's, there's a couple personal finance physicians out there. And one of the things that they advocate is get yourself in a good situation financially so that you can practice the way that you want. Like, like what you were saying is you don't have the student loan situation that a lot of medical students had. So that enabled you to practice however you wanted because money wasn't an issue. And um, I think one of the ways that happens is through legislation and or reducing the amount of student loans we incur. But another way is like, how do we as students get out of that debt that we do take on? Um, but uh, we have some other episodes about that. There, you know, there are some programs out there. I know my aunt had done one of them at one point where you do serve the underserved for a couple of years. I think you're obligated for something like three to five years to stay there. And then they, they basically absolve you of your student debt. So that, that is an option for some people. You usually end up being more in the rural areas. It's where they put you. Um, but it's definitely, um, those are programs that are worth looking into. What other advice do you have for physicians and students who want to serve an underserved population? Yeah. So um, a couple of things. I think that the first thing I would say is whenever you are embarking on a journey and, and really kind of cultivating your career is a journey, you want to constantly renew your intention. So why am I doing this in the first place? Um, and I think that's so important because at the end of the day, all the stuff you got to deal with the prior authorizations to get medicines, you know, the um, annoying insurance company on the phone for another reason all the paperwork, everything that you have to deal with, which is frustrating, it's very secondary to why you went into this in the first place. So I would say the first thing is just make sure that you constantly are thinking about why you're doing something. That's also going to help you as you navigate the system, not to lose your way and then feel a sense of burnout or feel like, you know, what am I even doing with my life anymore? I've lost the purpose of what, you know, I, I wanted to do in the first place, right? When you're chasing the money because you have to, because of bills, you, you got to kind of keep sight of, of um, at least keeping your your goals and your purview so that you don't ever feel like you're only doing something for money. Cause that, that can be a very empty feeling to have as a physician. Um, I think the other things I would say would be, um, it's something I'm working on for myself. My nurses tell me this all the time. I have one nurse who keeps telling me she's like the job of God has been taken. Um, you need to have some self care. You can't take care of everyone. And I think that that's really hard to hear sometimes and really to internalize but you need to set a pace that's reasonable for you. So make sure that, you know, um, you're seeing patients at a pace that you can see them at, um, that you're taking on as much responsibility as you can handle, that your the rest of your life is not suffering, right? This should not all be about work. We're human beings, you know, we're not just one dimensional. Family should be great. You know, social life should be great. And then on top of that, you have a job that you love um, and that you're working towards, you know, a bigger goal, which is, you know, serving the community and, and particularly people who don't get served as often as others. So um, I would say that, you know, the second thing would be self-care. Just make sure that, you know, you're really um, taking the time to take care of yourself and um, to put limits on yourself so that you don't feel like it's your responsibility to help everyone. As much as we'd love to do it, we just can't, right? Because we're not God. So <laughs> this job of God is, is already taken, as my nurse always says. Um, aside from that, really think about, like you were mentioning earlier, um, setting yourself up for success. So how can you diversify um, where your income is coming from, right? So in terms of like, if I'm going to do a specialty with cosmetic or higher paying procedures, um, even if it's not cosmetic, 
maybe I'm going to do a couple of days a week of that so that I can take care of this population on the other days. Or maybe I'm going to have a satellite clinic, you know, two or three times a month in the Shishi area of town, you know, and do whatever they need there so that I can like take care of the urban areas that, you know, at other times. Um, so I think those would be my three points. So, so I have a quick follow-up. So you've mentioned a couple of times people who have satellite clinics, just from a random logistics kind of question, people who do that, do they just rent out those clinics for a day or do they own a clinic and then just they're paying rent on it all month, but it makes up for it because they go out there or, or how do they do that? Or do they just rent space from a physician who's like, you know, family med doc in rural Texas. And they're like, just come in for a weekend so that we can, you know, you can use my space, but I want you to see my patients. How does that work? Yeah. So, um, it, it, there's so many different ways to get that to work. Um, and so a couple of things, some people actually will work part-time for like a multi-specialty clinic, for example. So it'll be like doctors from all different types of specialties out there. And then maybe once or twice a week, they'll work there. So that's, that's one way to do it. You could do it at the academic institutions too, like do a day a week at the academic institution. The rest of the time is your private practice. A lot of people will do things like that. And then you may be actually able to rent out an office in a, in a doctor's, um, a doctor's office, potentially if you're, um, that might be a, a kind of cool model to do is if you were um, friends or know somebody who's a primary care physician who has a little bit extra room in their office and see if they'd be willing to rent out a room once um, once every so often. And that would be great in the sense of also that may be an benefit their patients, right? Because they have a direct referral into your clinic. So there's all sorts of different ways to do it. I would not advocate for renting space in two different places with like for the whole month, I just feel like that's going to be, you're, you know, we're already talking about finances and it's just going to be more of a, a money suck, I think. Yeah, I like this and it's kind of cool because um, you were talking about your comment earlier about you can't be God. I think that's something that a lot of medical students have trouble with. And I've even found it, uh, you know, troubling to me because we're second years and we're getting ready for boards here. And it's like sometimes you get so worried about like, global problems or more broad problems from social media, friends, whatever it is. And it almost makes it hard to focus on studying for boards. So I've almost had to like separate those two things in my mind. And it's like, yes, this is a problem. I can't do anything about it right now. But you know, if I get a chance to, or I can't advocate it at certain points, I'm going to make that an issue, but it's not beneficial to me or my future patients if I'm spending all my time worrying about that. And, and then on the other side, you just kind of have to focus on what you're doing right now and deal with the reality on the ground sometimes, which is great because you're talking about all the different ways you can kind of make up for funding in rural clinics and things like that. And this is crazy, but I came from a smaller town and we didn't have a doctor's there, but he had an office and was there like one day a week. And it just never even occurred to me until you said that, that he was probably working closer to Dallas you know, most of the time and then coming out there almost just out of charity to kind of do whatever the small town needed. But that's pretty cool. The other thing that's really great about where we are right now, and probably one of the silver linings of the COVID pandemic, um, and hearts out to anyone who's lost people or taking care of people who, um, you know, have succumbed or are suffering from COVID. It's still, I think, such a huge tragedy that's ongoing. Um, but one of the silver linings is this whole concept of telehealth and access to telehealth. And what I'll tell you right now is that um, I'll talk about, we have a student-run um, pediatric dermatology health initiative at Harvard um, through Boston Children's as well, where uh, me and, and Dr. Jen Wong, um, we're faculty advisors for this. Basically what it is, is the med students run the clinic and it's for patients um, who are underprivileged. Um, and so they basically get um, evening slots where they get to be seen. Um, and we have, we have three teams. One of the teams is Spanish speaking completely. So everyone in the team is Spanish speaking, which is awesome. Um, but basically, um, 
that patient population, which also, you know, um, doesn't really get a lot of care in the beginning of this, when we started, it was all through telehealth, not purposefully, but because the pandemic had started, we went from in the regular clinics of a 50 to 60% show rate for patients who um, were underprivileged or had um, English as a second language or not at all in the household to 93% um, uh, rates of show. (laughs) So 93% of the time patients were showing up on our telehealth services, which was amazing. So I think that that's going to be another way and something very interesting to see going forward. Um, You know, whether we can um, provide some care, not not all, but some care to um, people who can't get it otherwise through telehealth. And um, there's actually two bills right now, um, one in the House, one in the Senate, talking about equity in telehealth. So um, doing things like removing prior authorization requirements from telehealth services that um, if you were getting the same service in person, um, you wouldn't need a prior auth for. It makes it so that you don't have to pay a copay for your telehealth visit. It makes it that insurance companies have to um, provide for telehealth services. And it helps um, people who um, don't have, for example, device access or access to good internet. Um, or even just literacy, like how do we use these devices? Like what's a tablet? Um, It helps to um, train them and provide those services so that they can have access to care in those ways. So um, I think that, uh, you know, stay tuned for that in terms of like, you know, um, how telehealth reimbursements go along the way. But I think that that might be a a beautiful way to start to incorporate for some people, um, giving access to care to uh, to our patients. And our patients really love it because Number one, they don't miss school. Number two, a lot of these family, families are working two or three jobs. Um, and, and to get in for a visit is hard. But if everybody can come in on their own little Zoom or, you know, other um, platform, um, that makes it easier um, as well. And number three, they don't have to rely on, on public transportation because a lot of these families don't have cars or they'd have to drive hours to get anywhere. Um, so stay tuned for that. But that might be another way to incorporate taking care of the underserved um, in a way that's cost effective because you also don't have to you know, you could do it from your family room. So you don't have to rent anything out. You mentioned that one of your teams has, is a full Spanish team. Um, I forgot to ask. So when you were a private practice in Trenton, New Jersey, you mentioned in the topical podcast about how a large portion of that was a Hispanic population. Um, I have a lot of friends who speak Spanish and I, I don't, I wish I did. How yeah. did you, do you speak Spanish or how did you interact with those patients? Do you pay for translation services? Is that something that the government provides? How does that work? Sounds good. So Senora Sassenguth is going to be really mad for me to say this because she was my high school Spanish teacher, but I'm going to say it. Anyway. <laughs> um, I, so I understand Spanish fluently um, and I can read it. And when patients are talking, I get everything they say. Um, I can't speak fast enough. I feel like, um, like in terms of like complex ideas to have those conversations by myself. So that's really good for me in terms of when I do use a translator, I can tell if they're good or not. <laughs> yeah. what the patient is saying. Um, and I also can see what their true concerns are. So that helps me a lot. Um, but what I did in this realm was that I hired people, like, so you mentioned like 80% of our population was minority um, and a significant percentage were Spanish speaking. Um, I hired people from our community. So our receptionists, our medical assistants, they were people from Trenton, New Jersey who spoke Spanish. So it was, so basically the patients were being taken care of by the people who were them. Right. And so that, that was super helpful because anytime I needed to explain something simply, I could do that. But when it was more complex, I would have one of my staff members and it could have been any of them because they all speak Spanish and they can all translate. Um, they know how to medically translate. They, they were able to help me out, which is great. But your point is a really good one because I remember as a private practitioner, interpreter services are ridiculously expensive. They are so expensive for, and maybe not for hospital systems that have this kind of plugged in, but 
um, for the person who's running their own private practice, it's pricey to, you know, to be charged each time. It's almost like, you know, am I going to, you know, all the money I'm making from the visit is going now to the translator. <laughs> like, what am I supposed to do? Um, two things I was thinking about in terms of getting around that. So aside from potentially hiring people who are multilingual with the, with the Sanskrit language being the language that's most common in your area besides English. Um, the other thing is if you are, um, partnered with a hospital at all, like you're doing inpatient consultations or things like that, you may be able to ask to see if you can use their translator services, like whether that's made available to you. And, and that might be either be done at a, a cheaper rate, or maybe, you know, as just part of the fact that you're faculty, you, you don't have to pay for it. So that might be one thing to consider. Um, and then the other thing I was, I was mentioning is let's see what happens with this telehealth bill, because what they're trying to do in this bill is they're trying to get the insurance companies to actually put the bill for translator services um, because they're needed. Um, and if that happens with telehealth and potentially other avenues of healthcare, um, that might make it easier for private practitioners as well. So can we talk a little bit about your transition in back into academia? Um, so you mentioned that you had a mentor who kind of said you're going to be an academician like you have it in you. Um, what qualities do you think he saw that like um, just told him you were destined to be in academia? I think he just really realized that I was a geek. Like I just geek out. <laughs> <laughs> I geek out with cool cases and I'm like a dog with a bone and I need to figure it out. And this is so cool. And look at this article that, that came up and can we use this concept for this thing? And, and then I, I love to teach. So, uh, you know, when I was in private practice, my medical assistant used to make fun of me because I didn't have trainees in my clinic at the time. And like all the patients, I'd be like, yeah, you know, so your baby has a nevus sebaceous. 10 years ago, we used to think of this about this, but this is what we do now. And you know what? The skin cancer risk is actually really low. And my, my, um, my medical assistant would be like, you are like, you basically are teaching the parents. Like they're like your residents. But the thing was, we got so much buy-in from the families. Like they literally would do everything we said because now they understand why they need to do it. Um, so I think he saw that I really love teaching, that I really love complex cases, that I love working in teams. Um, and I just, you know, I think he, he realized that. And I think that's probably what he saw. Um, are you planning on doing full academia or can you even do part-time academic medicine, part-time clinic, or can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. So people definitely do it. We have that at Boston Children's. We have a couple of people who do um, private practice for most of their time and they come in a couple of days, you know, a month to do, um, you know, academic medicine. So definitely that is a hybrid model that some people will do. I'm hundred percent academic at this point. Um, I love it this way. Um, I don't know if that will ever change. Um, we'll see. Um, um, but you definitely can do it that way. You can, you can combine the two if you'd like. Um, and a lot of, um, academic institutions love that. NYU is another one. Like they have a lot of, as you mentioned, NYU earlier, they have a lot of their clinicians have that where they have their own side practices, but then they also come in and teach and, and, um, deal with maybe some of the more complex inpatient issues as well. This is funny, but earlier um, when you were talking about your story, you said one of the reasons that you went into academic medicine was to kind of get away from bureaucracy. And that's just <laughs> hilarious that you leave. There's so much bureaucracy in private practice. You're going to academia to get away from it. So I should probably clarify that because you are 100% correct. So the best thing about private practice is that whenever you want to make a change, you can just do it, right? So yeah. like, you don't have to have a meeting, a department meeting. You don't have to have an annual budget that things have to go through. It's like, I want to do this. Cool. I'm going to do it. Right. Mm -hmm. That's the best part. Um, the bureaucracy part that that's troublesome in, in private practices when you have to do your own prior authorizations yeah. and you need to get coverage for certain things. And like you're on the phone with the insurance companies trying to explain or justify everything. That is kind of the, you know, the, and all the paperwork that comes with that. That's the stuff in private practice where if you don't have enough support staff, 
um, to do that for you, it can really kind of bog you down. And I spent more than 50% of my time when I was in private practice on paperwork, um, you know, tr- just trying to get people care. Like we needed prior authorizations to get EKGs and ultrasounds. It was ridiculous. And at the end of it, when I was there actually for more than a, I think a 15 or 30 gram tube of medicine, like, you know, cream, you needed prior authorizations. And I ended up calling a medical director of that particular insurance company and being like, you are obviating the care of my patients. Like it's one thing to prevent other physicians from doing that. But dermatologists, we prescribe tubes of medicine and we usually prescribe more than one. So you want me to get on the phone or write a letter for like two or three of them for each patient that I see just so that you'll cover it. So that is where the bureaucracy comes from in private practice, especially when you're dealing with patients who um, you know, don't have um, the easiest of insurances to deal with. I think that's the diplomatic way to say it. Um, but you are absolutely right. So in academia, there is a lot of bureaucracy and there can be personalities and there's all about working together in a team. So it's basically you pick your poison, right? So people who are more business-minded and love the autonomy, um, they may love to just be in a private practice. People who really don't want to think about the money and don't really want to deal with their own prior authorizations, um, at least all of them by themselves, um, and, and really want the ancillary, like the nurses and and the techs to help them out, then academia may be um, kind of a little bit better. Obviously, that's not the only reason to go into academia, but that would be probably, at least from the administrative burden part of it, that would make more sense to me. Who's, who's kind of deciding the prior authorizations? Is it other doctors or is it just someone that has been trained in yeah. what is good and what's not good? So every insurance company is different, but typically what happens is that they will have a list of criteria that they will allow or not allow. So I guess I'll, let me rewind and tell you this. Um, So every insurance company negotiates with the pharmaceutical companies um, for um, the prices that they're going to pay for certain medications. So you'll see, for example, if we take like um, eczema creams, right? There's so many different topical steroids. A lot of them are in the same class, meaning that they're equal strength. Why is one of them covered and the other one's not covered. Well, that's because there was a discussion between the pharmaceutical company and the insurance companies. Um, and there was a negotiation that was made saying that, okay, we're going to, we're going to cover this one at this rate. And we're going to take this one. We won't take this one, right? We'll take your product and not the other. So that's how like formularies are made. And there's, it's very, it's actually a lot more complex than that. And, um, a little bit disturbing when you start reading a little bit about it. Um, cause it's the business aspect of medicine that I think a lot of us may be allergic to. Um, but, um, that is how the formularies get started. Then beyond that, say that you need a medicine that's not on formulary, uh, or it, it is in formulary, but it requires prior authorization. What does that mean? Um, basically they have a criteria. Um, and so the first person you talk to probably doesn't know that much about medicine, but they can read a checklist and they can see whether your patient fulfills a checklist. And if they don't, um, then they ding you and say that it's denied. And then you have to appeal that. Um, and then when you appeal it, then it goes to the next person. And then eventually you can, uh, you can usually request something called a peer to peer. So a peer-to-peer is when you request to speak to a physician who works to, for the insurance company. And then you get on the phone eventually somehow, usually after a while, um, <laughs> with a doctor. And you can kind of plead your case with like, look, I know that, you know, it's for FDA approved for six and older, but the kid's five and a half. And look at like, we've tried all these other things and, and there's nothing else really to try. And she's suffering. And what should we do for six months? And like, here's the safety data showing it's safe for you know six months of age and older, even though it's not FDA approved. Like, will you please consider it? And at that point, a lot of times when you're talking to another physician, they will approve it. Um, but to get there is multiple steps and hurdles and think about every phone call and all of your staff's time. And all that time is paid time, right? Like that's all. And that's time that you're not in a, in a room with a patient taking care of them. Um, so typically, you know, it's, it's these formularies that are formulated between the insurance company and the pharmaceutical company. Sometimes there's a third 
person entity in there too. And then beyond that, it becomes checklists. If you fulfill the checklist criteria or not, and if not, then you can keep appealing until you get to, um, you know, peer to peer. And unfortunately, sometimes even with that, it doesn't work. So um, that is our healthcare system in America. Welcome. Uh, feel inspired. <laughs> they should have a system where the amount of time that you spend getting prior authorization is like reimbursed to the patient in, in like a deducted off their, the price of their medication or something. But. Right. Right. Um, really great ideas coming out. I mean, we need the newer generation and we need people from all walks, you know, the insurance companies, pharmaceutical companies and healthcare, these new generations of people to come together and actually rethink our priorities and work together on this because, um, you know, I believe in a capitalistic society. I don't have a problem with that, but I, um, I also don't believe in vulture capitalism. I think that we need to be fair to one another and all do well. Um, and everybody works hard and, and gets what they need to. So, um, fingers crossed that can happen one day. It's just, the system is complicated right now. And, um, there's definitely great parts to our healthcare system as well. But when we're talking about people who are underserved, you know, you're automatically kind of bucketed into the not so great parts of healthcare, which is why they're underserved in the first place. No, that's, that's a great perspective. And cause I, th I feel like I'm that way. I believe in a capitalistic society, but I like your term vulture capitalism, right? Like, like there's obviously needs to be some regulations in certain parts. And, and sometimes it's hard because sometimes regulations make things worse, you know, like yeah. The idea of prior authorizations is increasing regulation, which is making it worse. Um, but uh, um, we, we did just kind of want to wrap things up and just ask, um, ask you what other advice you have for medical students going forward in general. You know, if, if you have parting words for medical students on what's going to make them a great doctor, what would you say? So um, keep your passion. And, and the way to do that really is to go back and again, renew that intention. Why did you become a doctor in the first place? And make sure that no matter what you're doing in life and there's side turns and like sometimes you're gonna be doing a little less of it than you'd want, sometimes more of it than you'd want. But make sure that at the end of the day, your goal is your goal and that you have your eye on it and that you're working towards it. Um, I think that's, that's super important. Um, we talked about self-care um, already, but I think that's super important as well. Just make sure that your life is balanced because you know, one of the things we talked about, um, actually, so we had a health um, care advocacy day um, a, a couple days ago, um, and I can tell you a little bit more about that. But we, we talked about one of the physicians who had committed suicide in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic up in uh, New York. There's actually a bill now, now named after her, um, where uh, both in the House, actually in the Senate, looking at mental health of healthcare providers, right? Um, because one in four physicians has known of a physician who's killed themselves. Um, and so, you know, you've got big hearts, you want to help people, you're going to keep your eye on that goal. And at the end of the day, you're going to take a step back and, and realize that if you're not okay, your patients aren't going to be okay. And if you're not here, then nobody's going to get care, right? So I, I think that that's super important as well. And then I think it's really important to be pragmatic, you know, before you go into, you know, your own private practice and venturing out, know your population, know what the demographics are like, understand what the payer mix is going to be like, and try to set yourself up for success. You know, I, I love the heart that would go into like, you know, I'm going to go to an urban population where I get $10 a patient and I have to spend an hour each, with each one and it's great. Um, and then you're going to burn out or you're going to feel really sad because you're going to have to leave that job because it's not sustainable. So make sure that, you know, you try to mix things up a bit as well. But at the end of the day, I think it all comes back to being happy with what you chose to do. And the way you're going to do that is to go back to the heart of why you're doing what you're doing. Thank you. That's great advice. And it's uh, it's good advice when uh, we're in the middle of board prep. So. Yeah. Yeah. Good luck with that. Um, <laughs> it's, I know it sounds very scary. It will be over. Um, 
and you guys are all going to do fine. So don't, don't worry too much about it. Um, so in closing, where can people go to learn more about you so and your work? That's a great question. Um, I have a couple places. So I'm going to just kind of list them off. And if you ever need like written stuff, I can send them to you. So first of all, I work at Boston Children's Hospital. So I'm on the main website. So you can find me just by going to Boston Children's and putting in my name, Sarah Hussein. I'm in the Department of um, Dermatology. Um, the second thing is I told you about the Pediatric Dermatology Student Run Collaborative. So this is that med student clinic that we um do for the underserved. Um, if you just Google those terms, the Pediatric Dermatology Student Run Collaborative, you'll see the Harvard one come up. It's a QI project and we have a website there um, and I have a page there as well. Um, and then if you want to hear more about our Massachusetts Advocacy Training Day. So we just had it again, like I said, last uh, a couple of days ago. Um, we have one each year. Uh, people from all over the country do um, attend. Um, we want to do in person, but they've all been virtual. This is basically about advocating for bills that we think will help our patients um, and the healthcare society as a whole. And it teaches you how to do that. So it'll go through and tell you like, these are the three asks that we're going to have of our, our legislators, like, you know, um, three issues that we want to address with them. Here are the bills that are out there. This is how you effectively make your case. So they train you A, a to Z. And then in the afternoon, what we do, at least as in Massachusetts, is we take our people from Massachusetts and have them meet with their state senators um, and um, House of Representatives members or, you know, their their chief of staffs or whoever is available to do that and have these meetings. And we actually prep people um, in how to do that. So actually my group that I took in, not a single person had talked to a legislator before and they did the entire presentation themselves and they did amazing. And we actually got um, them to co-sponsor um, some of the bills. Um, so that that um, would be um, a, a website called https um, colon backslash backslash www.madtad.org. That's Massachusetts Advocacy Training Day. And you'll at least get to read about it and what we've done in the past. And it's a yearly event. The American Academy of Dermatology also has advocacy. So um, for anyone specifically in, in terms of dermatology, they could do that. MADTAD, last year we did a lot of coronavirus. So it wasn't just dermatology stuff, but a lot of the specialties and primary care uh, groups will also have the ability to, to advocate and they'll have training days as well. So look for that for your, whatever specialty you're interested in. And finally, um, I did a podcast on topical, which I, get, I know you guys know about. It was season three, episode one. So if you want to hear a little bit more about the backstory um, and how I got to where I got to or more about derm or pediatric dermatology, that would be a good resource as well. We'll link all those in the show notes for, for everybody. So yeah. Well, Dr. Hussein, thank you so much for coming on. It's been my pleasure. Thank you guys. Good luck yeah. with everything, boards, and then more importantly, your lives. <laughs>